You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. What is science? Where does it come from? Is it a cupboard? Hello and welcome to another edition, yet another edition of Wonder Cupboard. My name's Ian Bridgman. My name is Elena Falco. Uh, and here we are. What are we going to be talking about today, Alana? Uh, we're going to be talking about lab coats. Lab coats. Um, which actually should probably be called white coats because they're not just one in a lab. They're worn by medical doctors and obviously actors in toothpaste commercials. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also some field workers. Okay. But uh, we'll get to that towards the end. Uh-huh. This mm, is a teaser. A bit of a tease. Yeah. Have um, you ever worn a lab coat yourself? Uh, I have worn a modified lab coat. Okay. Um, in what way was it modified? <laughs> was it modified to go out on the town? <laughs> it was my dad's. Right. <laughs> and what, and in what way did he modify it? So, okay, my dad used to volunteer in hospitals mm-hmm. with kids. Uh-huh. And he wore a lab coat, but he was like a clown. Okay. So it was a modified coat uh, on which I had actually painted his clown name on right, the back. Right, okay. And so I helped him decorate it and I tried it on as well. It was quite fun. Um, <laughs> what was his clown name? Um, Pialletto. <laughs> That's which nice. Which in Italian, is, it's a reference to Pialla is, um, I don't know what it's called in English actually. It's um, uh, a carpenter's tool. Mm-hmm. And that was a homage to his dad, okay. uh, my grandfather, who was a carpenter. There we go. And so I think it's quite nice, uh, isn't it? It's excellent. Did, yeah. How well did your dad's um, clowning routine go down? Did he uh, uh, light up the wards? I think so. Yeah. He had he had like magic tricks that he tried on me before uh, before children, <laughs> yeah. and I I was amused. I've I have actually seen some of those magic tricks, and they are very amusing. They're very good. Some of them. So, are, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Excellent. <laughs> well, yeah, so you you have some experience with a lab coat. I feel like I must have worn a lab coat at some point, but mm. mainly as a joke. Yeah. I, I feel like, do you know what? I think it, it, the last time I wore a lab coat was probably from an escape room <laughs> where we had to pretend to be like scientists trying to crack the code of the mad scientists world domination plan or something. That's generally how the plot of escape rooms go. I find. It, it sounds like a, like a lab coat would be necessary. Definitely. For that, like, you know, cracking the code, all the spillages, all the code spillages, <laughs> code you can, spillages. you need that, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I think that's probably my personal experience <laughs> with a lab coat. Um, not a particularly profound experience. But today we're going to look more at the what they mean and where they came from. Why? Tell me, tell me why, <clears throat> uh, Eleanor. Ain't nothing but a garment. <laughs> tell me why. <laughs> If you if if you're gonna sing that song, I'm gonna keep pushing you for more lyrics because they okay. ask tell me why a lot. Ain't nothing but a piece of cotton. Tell me why. I never wanna hear you say I don't need a love coat. <laughs> I'm Great. Sorry. Well, you've been listening to One of the Cover. Thanks so much for <laughs> listening. Sorry, and this is the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> this has gone really badly, really fast. A little bit. Okay. Okay. So yeah, so they are quite symbolic mm-hmm. um, pieces of clothing, right? As you know, that's why they use them in um, escape rooms and that kind of thing. And may I share a personal annoyance? Mm-hmm. 
which is that they're so symbolic of science that sometimes they're used completely out of context. Okay. In my, so I'm in the Science and Technology Studies department at UCL, and so I'm a PhD student, right? And so what we do is studying the context of science, so history, philosophy, but exactly what we do in this podcast, essentially. And there is uh, this ad in our department that is for our department, which is already like, you're already in there, why is there an ad? I don't know. But anyway, that features uh, a woman chemist, apparently, going, like, doing something with the pipette, also universal sign <laughs> universal of science. Universal sign of science, yes. And the, the slogan says something like, looking for the perfect solution? <laughs> it is already, like, there will be k- kind of a weak pun if you were, like, uh, trying to advertise the chemistry department. It has no relation to what we do there. And so it just feels like a waste of space and it really annoys me. And it's next to the loose, so I have to walk past it every day. And I hate it so much. So that's definitely an example of a, a white coat, the power of the white coat stepping outside its field. Absolutely. It's funny you should talk about pipetting being the, the universal sign of science. There is a, a tumbler which I love, called um, That's Not How You Pipette. I'll put the link in the references, which you can look up on wondercover.com. It's that's not how you pipette.tumblr.com. And it's basically a collection of GIFs of people in films and television shows using pipettes incorrectly, <laughs> uh, which I've actually learned quite a bit because obviously I'm not a scientist. I don't really no, know. No. It turns out you use a pipette in a very specific way. Um, but it's it's full of people using pipettes as syringes and for all sorts of things. So uh, it's very amusing. I would go and check it out. It uh, sounds wonderful. Once you've finished listening to this, which you do in your listening chair, alone with full concentration and a blindfold on, yeah, I assume. I, I promise there will be content at some point. Um, <laughs> but first, a game. Okay. Do you want to play a game? Yes, let's play so a game. So it's called Draw a Scientist Test, or DAST. (laughs) Uh, It's something that social scientists do a lot with children. Okay. So we have uh, the equipment, (laughs) which amounts... And and me, the child. (laughs) Yes. So the equipment amounts to a piece of paper, a tick, we've got it, um, a pen. Mm -hmm. And so you ask the child to draw, draw a scientist. Okay. Maybe uh, the listener might wish to pause at this point and draw a scientist for themselves. Exactly. You draw a scientist. And if you have drawn a scientist, please uh, put it on Instagram and tag us because we'd like to see your scientists. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to draw a scientist now. Yeah. Okay. Right. Wish me luck. This is, <laughs> this is not going to be good. Okay. So first of all, head. Mm-hmm. Scientists have heads. Yes. Uh, I, 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 I attempted to reinforce the head, but I, it looks like I've drawn hair. And I'm going to go with that. Uh, scientists often have eyes, mm-hmm. not necessarily. Um, and this scientist is smiling because they've always, from an early age, they always dreamed of becoming a scientist. And they've actually achieved their goal. So it's a happy scientist. It's a happy, fulfilled scientist. Okay, so I'm going to um, give them a neck. <clears throat> uh, this is, I mean, you're getting a real blow-by-blow <laughs> account of... Okay, now that's where it's gone wrong. Uh, arms. Okay. I mean, we've been talking about lab coats, so um, 
you know, I'm going to put them in a lab coat. That's the thing. I'm somewhat biased mm. already by this episode. It it does. This lab coat's got a bit long for them. The, the arms, particularly, so it kind of looks like a child <laughs> in a lab coat. In a lab coat. Um, let's give them some like a collar on the lab coat. That's good. Kind of look like they're doing like school art classes as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Hands also common amongst scientists, but not necessary. Um, three buttons like a snowman. Cool. That's pretty good. Um, oh, that's. Make that like that. Just give them some feet like that. Little shoes. They look like they're wearing kind of clogs. Uh, I'm giving them curly hair as well. Um, there we go. What, there we go. What do you think? <laughs> that is so ju- cute. Judging on the laughter, I, I take it you're impressed. I am very impressed. It's very cute. I think we should put that on Instagram as well. Uh, definitely. <laughs> so that everyone can appreciate your That's going on my deviant art, art page. Um. <laughs> so the, the reason why I asked you to do this is that people normally have a fairly stereotypical idea of what a scientist look, looks like. Mm-hmm. And you've actually been fairly good at it. Thank you. Like, that's a fairly gender-neutral scientist. Yeah, my scientist is fairly androgynous, yeah. I would say. I think that's pretty nice. Yeah. Um, curly hair. Also, yeah. not uh, an extremely white, uh, necessarily white scientist. scientist. That's so true. That's pretty good. Um, most the feet are a little bit troubling. They look like they they might be having an allergic reaction to a bee sting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna say they're wearing those kind of things that you put over your shoes in clean rooms and stuff to avoid sure. your shoes contaminating the environment. Lovely. That's my excuse for that. Yeah. Um. So yeah, people normally. Where, um, where people normally draw scientists as male, okay, with a beard. Oh, for okay. reasons, beards are everywhere. Sometimes glasses. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So basically, you. Um, <laughs> and sometimes they have some kind of piece of equipment, like you know, the pipette or mm. some kind of uh, yeah, bunser or something. Um, and most of the time, they're wearing a lab coat. Like the lab coat is one of those things that is so common in the dust test because of its incredible symbolic value, mm-hmm. right? Um, so actually, we should have already started with this. So I could go, oh, I see it has a lab coat, but then you knew we were talking about this, so that's pointless. Anyway, <laughs> so nowadays, the lab coat, in a lot of situations where it's worn, doesn't have a practical purpose anymore. It used to, sort of, but the practical and the symbolic have always uh, been intermingled. In fact, its symbolic value is sometimes valued more than the practical consequences of wearing a coat. Especially in hospitals, they are major carriers of bacteria which can worsen the condition of patients. I've seen it described as a microbiological zoo um, (laughs) (laughs) because that's what it is. But then people expect doctors to be wearing them. And, you know, there are surveys about this. Older patients prefer their doctors to wear white coats, uh, and most of them still do after being informed that there is a high risk of cross-contamination. So the, the symbolic value overrides the practical needs. Right. Even when, yeah, so even when patients are told this is, this is a risk to your health, they still feel more comfortable. Well, yeah. these older patients at least felt more comfortable. Yeah, or at least the, the people who said yes to, I would feel more comfortable, most of which are older. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, in, a, in a survey done recently in France, 89% of the people who had said, I'd rather my doctor 
wear a white coat. After having been told about the cross-contamination, 89% have said, yeah, still want it. <laughs> I, I just don't know. But anyway, in fact, in the UK, NHS doctors don't wear white coats anymore as of 2007 because of the risk of infection. And there are calls to stop wearing them elsewhere as well, like there are debates like this in uh, Dubai, Israel, India, and so forth. This has caused quite a lot of heated debate. So I looked into it because I thought perhaps there's some kind of uh, nice, sub- subtle, you know, nuanced debate around this. It's not. It's like the most unsubtle debate ever. <laughs> it's basically just people going, it's so dignified. Right. And everyone else going, and? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I found a great quote on a blog on the British Medical Journal. So very reputable source. Mm-hmm written by a plastic surgeon who works in China. Uh, He's a British plastic surgeon who works in China. Rise up! (laughs) (laughs) Retake the initiative and elegantly and proudly redrape the white coat around your shoulders. I'm just going to add a little soundtrack to this for me. (laughs) Doctors in the UK, buy your own white coats. Get at least three. Wear them with pride and get back to work. Right, wow. I know. A call to art, a call to <laughs> like, lab coats. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so wearing a lab coat in a medical environment on top of the bacteriological issues has also an impact on patients themselves. And there's this condition that is known as white coat hypertension, which has been observed uh, in patients in hospitals. So the mere presence of the coat makes the blood pressure go up, which, given that it's a sign of nervousness, is a bit alarming. It means people are anxious around doctors. Doctors are there to help you. They should be a soothing presence. But, you know, I do understand I am terrified of doctors. I think I get that as well. Um, you know, they get to poke you and hurt you and make you eat stuff that tastes of death. <laughs> and it's allegedly for your own good. <laughs> um, I'm also terrified of clowns, by the way. So my dad volunteering in hospitals was a really bleak time <laughs> in my life. It's a Venn diagram with a very bleak centre right there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that's me screaming around it. <laughs> And anyway, this effect is so pervasive that pediatricians and psychiatrists never wear coats. And not only that, this needs to be taken into account in social psychology experiments, for instance. Milgram, uh, when he did his experiments on authority, which we talked about a couple of episodes ago, we're not going to reply, but basically it's about what would a person do if the experimenter told them to do that? Like how far would Mm. someone go? So the experimenter needed to be easily identifiable. So they were wearing a lab coat. However, if it had been a white coat, the effect on the subjects could have been attributed to the white coat effect. So not the, to... the white coat effect. So the, the, the stress of seeing someone in a white coat. Exactly. And so, and, but they wanted to take this kind of medical association out of the picture, right? Um, because otherwise it would have been a confounding variable. And so the experimenter in that case was wearing a grey coat. Right. Which I thought was just a lovely touch Mm. on Milgram's part. But how did the white coat become so iconic? Story time! (laughs) 
So we're talking about two parallel stories here, basically. The stories of clothing worn by scientists and by doctors kind of converged into the white coat. So we have to start with them separately. Let's start with medical doctors. Up until the 19th century, they were just mucking about with people, trying somehow to make them feel better. They mostly cut people up and gave them weird shit to drink, such as cocaine, mercury and lead-based solutions, or gave them too weird shit to drink, such as leeches, for blood. Mostly, Western doctors would wear dark clothing because it was considered formal and encounters with doctors were considered a formal interaction. Also, in Western culture, black is associated with death. And if you were seeing a doctor, chances are you would die soon, um, either despite or because of the treatments prescribed. In the case of surgeons, they would wear dark frock coats, which were like the common sort of gentlemanly um, outfit, that were never washed. Right. So at a time where they would just kind of really quickly cut people up because they were screaming. Mm-hmm. That was the scenario in which these frock coats were, were uh, worn. And in fact, wearing a dirty coat covered in the blood and other fluids formerly belonging to your patients meant that a surgeon had operated a lot. Which, by the way, if you think about the fact that the stains wouldn't be noticeable, they had to be so dirty that the fabric became stiff. <sighs> Just imagine that. Can you imagine the smell? But I mean, obviously, back then they didn't appre- they didn't didn't necessarily have such a strong association between that kind of smell and mm. disease. Yeah, the smell of them must have been unbelievable. That's the smell of experience. Yeah, yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Like some of them would stick the dirty needles that they used to throw people up to the lapel of the frock coat. Like, <laughs> look, this has been places. Wow. So then Louis Pasteur, Saint Louis Pasteur. He's not really a saint, but he should be. Patron saint of milk. (laughs) (laughs) So he discovered sepsis between 1879 and 1880. At the time, we were also starting to understand that bacteria cause disease. Uh, We knew that bacteria existed We had known that for centuries, since the 1600s, but at that point, they started to be associated with disease. We knew that they could be transported and that they could be killed with heat. So those dapper black coats somewhat lost charm. (laughs) Um, uh, And wearing white became fashionable. It was a good way to show you were wearing clean, so hygienic, clothing. White was also a symbol of purity. Over time, as medicine gained uh, credentials by actually and finally curing people, <laughs> white coats became a symbol of authority. Do you know what? This medicine thing might catch on. <laughs> might catch on. So, Lord loves a trier. <laughs> and it seems to have paid off. Finally. <laughs> so let, let's go to scientists now. Okay, so we, we've got to the point where doctors are wearing lab coats. Um, sorry, white coats. Let's go back to scientists and a bit back in time before the 1800s. So we're looking at around the 1600s, 1700s. The great time when alchemists roamed the streets <laughs> trying to turn lead into gold. Like, that was bad as science, right? It was, yeah, but also quite a disappointing science. 
Yeah, but I admire their ambition, though, because mm. it's like we're mucking about with substances. Why should we try to turn, I don't know, rocks into water? I know one cares, right? There's water <laughs> everywhere. There's rocks. Yeah, let's, let's aim for the big ones, yeah? Mm. Huh. Well done. <laughs> I, I love alchemists. <laughs> um, also, Newton was one, by the way. Mm. We'll do an episode about that at some point because Newton was mystical AF. Um, so they were they were special people, right? Mm. And as such, they wore special clothing, a bit like a uniform. Something that twas would look very much like a dressing gown. Okay. Soon I shall turn lead into gold, <laughs> but first I shall turn cloth into dressing gowns. <laughs> this yeah. is kind of training. Yeah, they were basically just like dressing gowns with a cord around their waist, you mm-hmm. know. And they came in all sorts of different colours. There are really nice paintings uh, that depict these alchemists. And in some cases, they are quite quite nice, like, um, you know, red satiny looking Mm -hmm. fabrics and that kind of thing. So, yeah, in in these paintings, basically everyone looks like Hugh Hefner. (laughs) It's just old men in in dressing gowns. Wow. (laughs) And, And some people think that well, and by people, I mean academics that have studied this. Um, I think that these had a sort of mystical flavoring, right? Because it was similar to the clothing worn by members of the clergy. Um, so there was this idea that the alchemist was pursuing the truth, you know, like a religious vocation. In practical terms, the robe would also protect the clothing from chemicals. I'm not sure whether there's a connection here, but consider the fact that clothing was incredibly expensive at the time. Clothes were handmade, obviously, uh, and considered like investments, like pieces of furniture. So proportionally, a lot of your budget would go into that. Consider that in England, a men's suit at the time would cost up to £8, which was a year's wage for a housemaid. Right. So well worth covering up with a much more affordable robe, uh, which would also give you an air of sophistication. (laughs) I could be living in a mansion with this kind of outfit. Yeah. <laughs> On my own. <laughs> I could make chemistry friends. <laughs> so now I'm just picturing alchemists lying around me making fruit friends like Miranda Hart. Okay, And then yes. trying to turn them into real people. And that's just, <laughs> it's just or, or, you know, playmates. Anyway, um, time went by. People who worked in laboratories started adopting work coats in drab colours like grey, beige or blue, which were worn by shopkeepers. They were practical and made sense symbolically as well. A lot of research was done by apothecaries, goldsmiths, herbalists uh, and so forth as part of their daily jobs. These shopkeepers were not applying other people's discoveries. By experimenting, having plants and minerals imported and testing their products, they were actively contributing to knowledge. Um, And that's something that is starting to be recognized now because for a long time, historians didn't really consider these very small contributions, but they they actually were fundamental. It was more the sort of the rich tinkerers were, were taken as being the real scientists. Yes. Whereas the kind of the day-to-day practical um, experimenters like yeah like these herbalists and, and so on were actually getting a lot of work done yeah yeah and you know as you said the the, the ones that uh, made the headlines were the academic researchers which were 
belonged to all higher classes, obviously didn't want to be mistaken for shopkeepers, because God forbid. <laughs> um, but at the same time, there was no such thing as casual clothing. Um, the, the status called for a certain image that they projected through clothing as well. So most of them delegated lab work to their assistants, thereby getting away with more fashion-forward outfits. Image was very important because it made you look like a gentleman. Being a gentleman, obviously we're just talking about men so far, just so we're clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This whole bit so far, it's about men's clothing. Mm. Being a gentleman implied that you were following a code of honour and were a reliable witness. This matters because trust is fundamental in science. One person or a group of people runs an experiment and then reports the results, right? So how does the audience know that they're not just making it up? So the code of honour was a guarantee that the results were genuine and that the scientist was an authority to be believed. And nowadays we would, you know, we have things like peer review to give that trust and authority. But back then this was... Almost like they imported the source of trust <clears throat> from society at the time to work for science. Yeah, I mean, peer review already existed. Okay. It wasn't as structured as it is now. Um, but yeah, but it was um, almost like a, a cluster of things that gave someone credibility, right? And and this mm. was part of it. Like the, the social aspect of it was huge and arguably it still is, mm-hmm. uh, even though people are not gentlemen anymore like obviously there are a lot of women in science but arguably there are other indicators of status but we can't get into it now but yeah Mm -hmm. that's that's a big part of the history and sociology of science so when these gentlemen eventually ended up wearing protective clothing because they were going around labs anyway even though they were not doing anything they were just overseeing other people's work it would be something that could be left slightly open in order to show off the elegant outfit underneath. (laughs) Um, So instead of wearing shopkeepers' coats, like their assistants, they'd wear aprons. Okay. This also showed how unconcerned they were with money. They could afford new clothes whenever they wanted. So it's time to merge the two histories, (laughs) right? So we had the doctors slowly becoming reliable (laughs) and wearing coats and now we've got um, lab workers and so forth so eventually these two groups of people men uh, ended up working (laughs) in the same i mean there are exceptions but mostly men ended up working in the same place which was the hospital so at the start of the 20th century hospitals started becoming scientific and running tests in order to diagnose patients and, and so forth And for that, they needed chemists, biologists, and so forth. So for practical reasons, it made sense for them to wear the same coat as the medical staff, which initially was not white, but grey or blue. Massive laundry facilities started to appear on site in order to take care of clothing, towels, sheets, and all that. At this point, working in a lab started being associated with prestige. So you were not the assistant of some rich guy anymore, but you were, you know, part of effectively the medical profession mm-hmm. somewhat um, and so scientists felt like it was time to adopt the white coat um, because at that point they were just as important as doctors or considered as important as doctors arguably a lot of other people are just as important as doctors but 
So grey and blue were once again left behind and became the colours of factory workers, mechanics and uh, people who work in those sort of environments. Wonder cupboard. So again, those were men. Women. <laughs> <laughs> women and clothing. Wait, women can do science? <laughs> like, uh... 19th century garb they can't. <laughs> I mean, they, they did and, you know... They did despite it. <laughs> Thank God they did. Yeah, it was it was tough because, of course, the massive participation of women in science is a fairly recent development and we still have a long way to go. And clothing was one of the main obstacles that they had to overcome if they wanted to do science. So in the 19th century, upper-class women, who were the only ones who could even think of getting close to doing science because everyone else was completely beyond that idea. They would it would it would it was considered okay for them to indulge in uh, a little bit of kind of naturalist work. Mm. And we talked before in uh, in our sexy plants episode about how women turned to botany as something that they were sort of allowed to do. Yeah. Until the botanists realized that botany was sexy. Yeah. <laughs> but that's another episode. <laughs> that's another episode. Go look it up. There are orgies. Um, there aren't any orgies, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, they, you know, they would go around and pick up specimens of plants and rocks, um, but they had to do it in their everyday clothing. Okay, so I've looked up on the Victorian Albert Museum uh, website what this would entail, right? So in the 1820s and 30s, dresses were worn over stiff corsets, and several petticoats, <laughs> which evolved into a petticoat over a steel cage that held it away from the body. Right. So you were going around in this massive, like, lampshade type thing. Okay. Heavy lampshade. It's fucking yeah, steel. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Outdoors, they would wear shawls instead of jackets, which if you have ever worn a shawl, you know just how much more cumbersome they are. Uh, they don't give you any um, leeway for moving your arms. It's 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 a nightmare. And they would have been from pretty heavy fabrics as well. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's heavy enough in the dry, but if you get a bit of rain on it, then it's gonna <laughs> you, you need a few people to help stand you up. <laughs> yeah, you're like wearing a felted coat essentially that is getting smaller and smaller by the second. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so so they couldn't really go anywhere picking things up, mm. but also that was the only thing they could do. I'm just, could you just pick that? I'm sorry, I'm wearing this very large skirt. Would you mind just, just, um, it, it's literally just that I've, I've tried to reach it, but it, it's just, it's just a little bit as. Oh well, you see, now this is why women are not suitable, <laughs> suited to science. They clearly don't have the temperament or the intellect. I know, but it's just, it's literally just there. If you could, it's, I'm, it, <laughs> that's basically science in the 19th century. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, some women rebelled to this. Um, they would borrow clothes from male relatives um, or go completely rogue and wear feminist clothing. Fantastic. Yeah. So this came out uh, of the Victorian reform movement. It's heyday being between 1850 and 1880 in the UK and the US, which promoted something called the rational dress for upper-class upper women. 
that is clothes that were actually comfortable and allowed freedom of movement. It was popularized by Amelia Jenks Bloomer, the editor of a feminist magazine, who took the streets of Seneca Falls, New York, with two other ladies wearing a knee-length dress over trousers. This was revolutionary at the time. Women wearing form dress were also known as bloomers. They must have looked seriously cool. I know, right? And scandalous. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So for a long time, wearing trousers was still considered inappropriate, like until the middle of the 20th century, really. Those who worked in the natural sciences were restricted to studying specimens they could find in fairly accessible places. Mm. So they could commission men to go and pick up specimens, as in your scenario, Um, But then they would lose contextual information where and how they were found. And so they couldn't do as much as men were able to do, right? So eventually, women finally started wearing trousers and lab coats. But unfortunately, the struggle wasn't over. For a long time, lab coats were all the same shape and wouldn't accommodate the female figure. Uh, Now you can find all sorts of lovely cinched ones, but that's not the end of dress-related issues. This one story is quite interesting. Um, A biologist from Japan called uh, Aruko Obokata, uh, when presenting her research, journalists decided to wear, instead of a white coat, a cooking apron that had been given to her by her grandmother. Which is kind of lovely, but the thing is, everyone seemed a bit too pleased with that choice because she looked unthreatening. So one of the interpretations of the reason why the reaction was so positive is that in Japan, women are generally expected to behave in meek and childlike ways. So wearing an apron was a good way to deflect the attention from her grown-up important work, right? So it was more like, I am first and foremost a woman, and then I also do science. So it was a way to kind of foreground that womanly identity so Mm. that she didn't look threatening to men. So... almost that she wouldn't have been given a look in if she'd turned up dressed like the men because they would have gone, you know, threatening. And this was a way of almost she was attempting to soften her image so that she could get her her science through. Yeah. That being said, I I have looked up uh, photos of uh, women scientists in Japan and they do wear lab coats. So Mm. it's not like everyone is wearing an apron. Uh, I just think this is quite an interesting story because of the way it was received and because it kind of unlocked an aspect of Japanese culture that you would think doesn't really have any space in in a scientific environment, but Mm. really it does. And in fact, Japan is always very low in international gender equality rankings. Women tend to not work after they have married, which obviously could be a choice. But if everyone is doing it, probably not a choice. Mm. But anyway, it's like when cultural things are concerned, it's it's kind of a complicated issue, but it's just kind of quite interesting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So in, in some ways, lab coats then have become a fashion in themselves. Like in the 90s, uh, uh-huh. when minimalist clothing became fashionable at some point, a lot of clothing took inspiration from lab coats. There are different kind of ways of reading these trends. Some think that it reflects a need for calm and safety. Okay. Even though they're terrifying. (laughs) I, I, I feel like the alchemist one was more calming 
Yeah, I think so. Sounds that, a bit cosy, right? That's my feeling. Yeah, yeah. A nice silk dressing gown. Yeah. Some fluffy slippers. Yeah. Fire. <laughs> cool. But anyway, that's that's someone's interpretation of this. Others go more extreme. Uh, I'm quoting from uh, someone who did an analysis of this. And they thought that these garments were, quote, a combination of the minimal and the medical with a sort of creepy sadomasochistic edge to it. And it plays into our fears about technology and biotechnology. You're choosing to look as though you were the one who has the power of a life and death. <laughs> wow. That's a very interesting analysis. That sounds more like an armour, doesn't it? Mm. Like some kind of protection. I think it's people finally wishing to emulate those great style icons uh, that exist within our culture. Bunsen and Beaker from the Muppets. Yeah, true. Mm. Um I think that's that. That's people, <laughs> maybe not a conscious decision, but just seeping into mm. people's consciousness. It's like, you know, I want to improve myself. I reckon these two guys, these mm. two fuzzy guys, <laughs> one green, one orange, they're probably the the kind of people that I want to model myself after. Yeah, I can see that. You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. Some scientists have been asked about why they wear a lab coat and what they think it means. And they they have said that it has to do with setting them apart from other people. Um, it's a bit like having a walking um, certificate of the, the, of your degree, right? It's like This it's is to certify that uh, X is a scientist <laughs> with a capital S. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's like they don't have to prove themselves because the coat does does that for them, right? Actually, recently there has been this story on the news, which I may link to because it's quite amusing and terrifying, of a guy who pretended to be some kind of scientist that has to do with the mind. Like, he was very unclear even about what he was pretending to be, but basically sort of like a psychologist, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And he published a lot of really controversial research about things like necrophilia and suicide and whatnot that got picked up everywhere and and but it, it looks like he basically conned everyone and in most of the photos he's wearing a lab coat and a stethoscope right which is like you don't need a lab coat like if you were an actual psychologist you would <laughs> not be wearing a lab coat mm. and a stethoscope <laughs> So you can listen to the brain, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you pop pop that on, pop it on someone's head, and you can hear like, hmm, I fancy a sandwich. <laughs> and all sorts of inner thoughts. That's how it works, right? Yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. <laughs> um, so yeah, so um, I've also <laughs> I pretended to shop for lab coats, which has, by the way, skewed my targeted ads. <laughs> <laughs> now I see, like, I'm... I'm People are trying to sell me lab coats uh, left and right. Mm -hmm. I do not have a useful one, thank you very much. And I found designer lab coats that I don't think anyone does any work in. They seem more for like American doctors wanting to look cool in interviews. They cost something like $200, $300 a pop. Wow. And it's it, for like, if you want to look like house. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And um, they have, like, the names are great. Like, my favourite is Lennox Classic Fit. Ooh, sounds <laughs> refined. 
What would you what would you call your line of uh, designer lab coats? Well, I've got I've got a few suggestions for lab coats uh, written down here because I knew we would be talking about this sort of thing. Uh, so I've got three potential ones. We've got the Faraday, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, features interwoven uh, an interwoven steel cage to present, prevent against electric shocks. Nice. You have to plug yourself in. That's yeah. the only problem to Earth. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But apart from that, you can just get electric shocks all the time, and and you're fine. That's wonderful. So that's the Faraday. And also, that's an homage to Victorian women's dress. Exactly. Wonderful. Exactly. Maybe uh, that's what they were doing. <laughs> maybe <laughs> it's a, trying to a Faraday Twist. cage for the legs. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, Schrodinger's coat. Lovely. Uh, you can't tell whether the wearer is asleep or awake until you poke them. <laughs> so does it have like a hood? Yeah, it's just a very kind of, uh, it kind of keeps things covered up, so you really can't tell. Someone's sat down. Useful for lecture theatres. You can have a good mm. snooze. And you literally can't tell. There's no there's no way of knowing. Wonderful. Uh, and finally, uh, the Watson and Crick, uh, which is a, a women's lab coat, but with the word men scribbled in the back. <laughs> Lovely. Ah, oh, we love poking fun the Watson and the Crick, don't Indeed. we? Indeed. Yeah, so some some have tried to come up with like the the definitive lab coat, right? With um with different pockets and compartments for devices mm. and so forth. Also I, I have become aware of the existence of uh lab coat books. Right. Which are books that are made to fit in a lab coat pocket. Um, and they're normally reference books, like quick reference mm-hmm. books. And I think it's just quite wonderful. Yeah, that's nice. Even though in some cases this becomes a misnomer because it has become somewhat synonymous with a quick reference book. But some of these are so thick that they would technically fit in your lab coat, <laughs> but they would hinder your movement. <laughs> You'd be walking slightly to the left the whole time. <laughs> exactly. It's still, it's still quite wonderful. So, to sum up, <laughs> it doesn't look like lab coats are going anywhere. Mm-hmm. In places like actual labs, uh, they are still useful to protect, you know, to protect people from things like chemical and fire. Yeah. Um, in fact, there are, you know, very strict regulations over uh, how to wear them. So, you have to wear them with their um, sleeves down and they have to be all closed. So, if you see someone just kind of striding around a corridor with their sleeves up and looking like the cool guy, that's not useful. Right. Like, people are supposed to wear them only in labs, not even in the spaces within the labs in that building. Mm. Okay. So... So next time you watch like some kind of science-based sitcom, think of this. <laughs> Not well, in the canteen. Mm. So anyway, I would like to end this episode with the most absurd use of a lab coat I have come across. Okay. Um, while doing research for it, so I was at, at the top. I mentioned that field workers wear lab coats somewhere, right? So this is a place near Cleveland in the United States where they grow rare ingredients for wanky chefs that work (laughs) in restaurants where you pay £300 for a dinner. Mm -hmm. Well, dollars, whatever. However much £300 is in dollars. A lot of money. £300. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so they they grow these rare ingredients, right? Um, This is the description that I found. Things like... Mexican tarragon, fine. Vietnamese 
putuinia, which apparently looks like basil and tastes like fish sauce. Okay. Ginger shoots, New Zealand spinach, <laughs> purple beans, micro red shizo, and melons. So sweet, you could cry. <laughs> um, and so obviously this kind of place is an amazing place for chefs to go around and feel like they are, you know, selecting these amazing ingredients mm. firsthand and whatnot. And so there's a lot of um, spectacle that mm. goes into it. And part of it is that field workers wear lab coats, which makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> also because these, I mean, I don't know how many of these things are kind of artificial plants and how many of them, you know, there's, there's that mixture of the lab coat kind of implies that they made them. Yeah. <laughs> but did they? I don't I don't know. Like It's just theater, isn't it? It's just so bizarre. It's farm theater. And so yeah, so I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so time for the references. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's have a look at the references. And now, the references. So I got a lot of bits and bobs from various um sources so that there isn't the massive source this time around and I will put obviously a thorough list on our website, which is wondercovered.com. It certainly is. Thank you. But some highlights in case you want to kind of go off and Google around immediately. There's this uh, academic called Maura C. Flannery, who has written a couple of um, essays on the lab coat that are from a sociological perspective. So uh, like the symbolic value of it. And, and there's a bit of history, a bit of how they are depicted in art and that kind of thing. And they're very interesting. One of them is called uh, the white coat, a symbol of science and medicine as a male pursuit. Uh, and the other one is called dressing in style, an essay on the lab coat. And a lot of the information for this episode come, comes from it. The, the the one on Japan is from a Medium article by Sophie Knight, who's a journalist who lived in Japan for a while, called Japan Has a Cute Problem. So if you're looking for historical background, there's quite a lot in the American Medical Association Journal of Ethics. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just really struggling with saying this, but you got what where I was going. The name of this article is, the title of this article is The Doctor's White Coat, a, a Historical Perspective by Mark S. Hochberg, MD. Plus, we have quite a lot of stats that we have kind of alluded to in this episode. Um, some of them are really interesting. Um, so we'll put, we're going to put some uh, links on the website as well if you're interested in knowing like exactly how bad cross-contamination is. <laughs> Very bad. So, yeah, there will, they will be all on the website. Which is wondercupboard.com for all your wondercupboard needs. Uh, you can also get in touch with us on social media, which I hear is popular. Yeah, remember to send us your dust pictures, please. Yes, if you've drawn a scientist, please, please send it in. Uh, so you can do that. Probably the easiest way will be on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, on Instagram, if you tag us at Wondercovered Podcast. Or email us, you know. Email hello at wondercovered.com is our email address. But we're also on Facebook if you search for Wondercovered. We're also on Twitter if you go to at Wondercovered. So we're around. Where I also post, uh, it's always me, <laughs> posting <laughs> weird facts about science, history and sociology that I kind of dredge up. Uh, yeah, there's, there's good facts, there's good retweets on Twitter in particular. Yeah, so definitely give that. The last look. one is about cow's urine. Yes. 
<laughs> well, it's the last right. one now. It won't be when this comes out, but you're not going to... Hmm. Well, whatever. Certainly, there is a tweet about cow's urine on at Wondercovered on Twitter. Yum, yum, yum. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so, if you... And apologies for that, but if you enjoyed the rest of the episode, <laughs> uh, you might want to subscribe... <laughs> You might want to subscribe on iTunes or follow us on Spotify, uh, and that means that you will get new episodes as we release them. You won't have to go, oh, I remember that podcast I enjoyed three years ago. I wonder if they ever did anything else. They they did. Um, <laughs> and, and if you bothered to subscribe, you would have seen it. No, no, but um, subscribing also really helps us get the word out about this podcast as well. So if you like it, that is a great way to help us. And that's about it. Yeah, we need to still work out what we've learned today. Oh, yes. So I think today we've learned that if you meet someone with a stiff black coat, don't let them near you with a saw. Wonder Cupboard. <laughs>